so what what started your uh, your interest in in the realms of biology and, and evolution? Well, first of all, I was always interested in nature and in in, in animals uh, uh, when I was a child already, and so and, and then at school I had at one point this very interesting uh, and very yeah, um, uh, engaging. Engaging, yes, and peculiar <laughs> biology teacher who not only taught us things that are known about life, but who also taught us about things that are not known about life and about how organisms function, about how life uh, emerged on Earth, how evolution progressed and produced all these amazing uh, organisms in the plant and animal kingdom. So he was really putting his fingers on unsolved riddles of evolution and on authors, biologists, philosophers who wrote about these things. And so, and he presented us with excerpts of their writings. And so we really read people who actually disagreed with the mainstream view of biology. And he had us to question these views and to read these other authors as well. And this, I found, was one of the most <laughs> valuable and amazing lessons that I've learned in biology by this teacher, because he really made us curious, or at least me, to look at things that are not yet known and not yet solved, and also um, yeah, have the opinion that this is precisely what a really, really good teacher needs to do. A really good teacher doesn't just tell you what to believe and, and what to, where to look at if you um, search for answers. He also addresses topics and, and raises curiosity in yourself so that you start looking into riddles or riddles that or phenomena that you consider a, real, a riddle. So he really made me curious to look at precisely those things that are not yet well understood in the realm of life. And so this concern, the origin of life, modes of uh, evolutionary progress or <laughs> downgress, if you mm, like, like mm. some organisms even reduced their complexity again and made all these peculiar uh, parasitic lifestyles and whatever. And he also um, made connections to nature philosophical concepts. So he introduced us as pupils, uh, um, already to Arthur Schopenhauer, uh, Immanuel Kant and these philosophers and their view about life. And so this was, for me, it was just amazing. And later on, this was only when I left school already, I, I started to pursue these questions and these interests and then also stumbled on to parapsychology and dove, <laughs> dived, <laughs> dove deep into parapsychology. So, but so that's true for me. It's just a natural progress. When mm. you look at riddles of life, you sooner or later end up studying parapsychology. Yeah. So, what what, uh, what active work did you do in in um, evolution? What what were some of the questions that were not that you found were not well understood? Did you look into yourself? Well, I already mentioned that uh, my biology teacher, Mr. Kanike. He already highlighted that, for example, the origins of life are completely unknown. So this is, of course, a few decades ago that he did that. But to my knowledge, 
it's still not known how life on Earth began, how the first cells formed, or even how the first uh, long chained molecules formed on Earth, like uh, proteins, which are built of amino acids or the um, RNA and DNA molecules that code for the formation of these proteins. So we still don't know how all that began. There are different models, of course, different hypotheses. The, the leading currently being abiogenesis, um, which is living matter, I suppose, from non-living matter, although it's it's contested, I know. But that is, I know, the current... Um, haven't they done experiments where they've shown that RNA can spontaneously form on hot clay? Well, if you look into the details of these experiments, you'll... Uh, I, um, I don't know to which experiment exactly you're referring to, but I don't know. the experiments that I know, they operate already with very many preconceptions. So you really have to look which substances do they use for their experiments. Do they use oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, carbon, or do they already use... Um, complex molecules like nucleotides and or possibly even activated nucleotides that have been created in the chemical lab with much effort and <laughs> following very complicated procedures. And if you look at that, well, at least the experiments that I am aware of, they always use very highly developed molecules. And so the, the basic question, how did these highly developed molecules form is not even addressed anymore because to my knowledge <laughs> they've never found ways to explain even this very very first step for example you have to have these uh, um, well i don't know if it's too specific but i tried anyway you have to have on all larger molecules they appear in two forms in 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 nature you call that enantiomeres, I suppose, in English as well. So you have a left-handed and a right-handed version of the same type of molecule, and you only can build usable long-chained molecules if you have a pure uh, substrate consisting of only one enantiomere and the second version, the second type of the same molecule, which is the mirror image or the, the mirror type, will immediately cause the chain to break and to make it unusable. So how do you get these pure um, um, uh, soups of complex molecules that only consist of one enantiomere? I don't know, and I think nobody knows until now. And there are many other problems like the hydrolysis. If you put long chain molecules into water, they will split because water has the, the very unwanted uh, um, property to split long molecules with a certain chemical binding and all these things they are just the, the, the experiments that I know that address these issues they were already start with a very complex experimental design that skipped most of the really critical um, steps the early steps and even then I, this would be maybe now going too far but even then it's really difficult to conceive the further steps because even if you have one beautifully formed long molecule how does a second one attach to it that really matches and even if you get that stage how and why should that 
disappear and di detach or detach again from 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 the first chain because once they stick to each other because of chemical bindings or electrochemical properties, they won't just separate by themselves and replicate and all these things. So this is really a very complicated matter. And I'm, I'm all, I, all experiments and all articles, like also the internet and all these things, they are very superficial and they don't really address the crucial questions anymore. And if I'm not mistaken, well, I've, wrote an, I've written a book back in 2007, which I was really deep into these matters. And the people, also the, the, the professional scientists investigating probiotic chemistry and these things, they said, hey, we, have, don't, we don't have a clue. So we, we better skip that stage. <laughs> so yeah, and that's, I think, where we still are. We don't have a clue. We have, some, we have problematic hypotheses, but nothing else. There is definitely more in evolution that, in my opinion, cannot be explained by the currently prevailing neo-Darwinian theory, which is, of course, a purely physicalist theory. It begins with the basic concepts of mutation and natural selection. Because even if we assume that at one point the first cells emerged, what they obviously did, if we stick to the conventional notion of time, then there was an increasing complexity leading to multicellular organisms and even they increased further in complexity, at least as a general rule. And every child in school uh, sooner or later learns that this is because of mutations, random mutations occurring in the genome of organisms and they lead to a differently shaped or differently behaving organisms and they are then selected by natural selection. Natural selection only leaves the best adapted, the fittest individuals alive, mm. if you put yeah. it this way. But then the, the traditional model is that that happens randomly. And of course, so many mutations take place that aren't fit for the environment and they yeah. die out naturally, whereas those that happen to be suited more to the environment continue on. So yeah. it's a completely random process. So uh, that's, that's the theory. I mean, yeah. we only can have theories because it's very difficult to perform experiments on evolution because yeah. You haven't got the time. most of it is past <laughs> and mm. even the ongoing processes take very, very long mm. time spans. But there was a time in the second half of the last century when after the genetic code and the... Um, the DNA was discovered and all that, and people already had the idea, well, now that we know how organisms are made, how they function, we can play with evolution and we will subject organisms to random mutations and we play evolution. So there was in fact um, a very large research discipline which received enormous amounts of money to induce mutations in organisms and the methods applied were chemicals that induce mutations and other things but especially also radiations like I think it was gamma ray because they are known to create mutations and so they took flies, worms, plants and of course also bacteria, very simple organisms and they virtually subjected millions of individual organisms of various types of species 
to these mutation-inducing substances and radiations and whatever conditions. But what they found as well, the mutations that we can obtain in this manner, they don't lead to better adapted individuals and they also don't lead to increasing complexity, for example. What they found is that the very, very, or the, the very enormous percentage or share of the induced mutations were of course lethal or pathological at least. And there was only a very, very tiny amount of mutations that could be regarded perhaps as positively under a changing, selectable under a changing environment. And they merely consisted of the alteration of existing metabolism pathways or of the loss of already existing traits. But they never <laughs> resulted in increased complexity or something really new and useful. And the, the more experiments they performed, the more they all, scientists also came to realize that the number of mutations that you can induce in a given organism is more or less limited. So most of the mutations are perhaps lethal anyway, and those that still allow an organism to live and to produce living offspring, not mm. to forget this is a very mm. important condition, yeah. the offspring must <laughs> be living as well and healthy, more or less, it's rather limited. And they always found and encountered the same mutations again and again and again, or phenotypes. And so I think it was back in the 80s already that this really huge uh, branch of mutation research was silently cut down and eventually vanished in the history of biology. Nobody talks about it anymore and nobody experiments like that anymore because it's really obvious that you cannot induce evolution or whatever positively selectable trait by selecting organisms to random mutations. So even in agriculture, whatever, you have find people who resorted to the usual crossing of different variations of existing trees or I don't know, wheat plants, whatever. And of course you find genetic engineering, but mm. nobody talks about mutations anymore. <laughs> so that's- Which is, which mean, is strange they, because they that's, that's the fundamental basis of Darwinian evolution is the mutation aspect. Yeah. 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 Would, would you say that, um, when you, you said quite rightly, of course, that we can't really observe evolution taking place due to the amount of time that it would take to, to, to take place and the fact that it's already happened. Would you say that, um, for example, you to use a modern example with the COVID virus and general flu viruses and things in general that do mutate each year to become resistant to current vaccines, is that an example of, of Darwinian evolution, do you think, on a short time scale? Well, it may be, but well, the, the occurrence of viruses in nature definitely is although especially with COVID, we don't know where exactly it originated from. Is it, is it a naturally occurring virus as well? But, but of course, the, the coronavirus family, if you like, well, it, it certainly does occur in nature. And of, of course, it produces variation. And it's obvious that these things occur in nature. The question is, do they uh, form the only type of um, variation and and are they the, these random mutations really the 
the foundation of evolution. Of course, they occur. We know that random mutations occur also in nature. We don't need to perform experiments to know that. We know it. We know that there are mutations of plants, of animals, even of fungi, who look strange, who behave strange, and who usually don't really appear very fit. So that, of course, happens. And selection as well happens. So nobody denies that. I don't deny it. The question is only, do these mechanisms suffice to explain all evolution? And this is what I doubt. So maybe we can look at another example of research of very modern times, which is called, uh, in the context of also human beings, kind of, I think it's a micro evolution. And there are examples of that even in the recent decades. And these I find interesting because I give a few examples soon. I don't see any reasonable Darwinian explanation for them. For example, wisdom teeth. It is known that since many decades, the people who grow wisdom teeth decrease. My son is a very good example. I have all my wisdom teeth still in my bones, in my, in my face. My, my wife had them at one point, but they had to be operated away many years ago because obviously wisdom teeth are often not very good and not very useful and very problematic. Still, we observe that many children, an increasing amount of children is born without wisdom teeth. My son is an example. He has no wisdom teeth, although both parents did have them when they were born. So I ask myself and the world, maybe anybody knows an answer, why is that? Do I or my wife or both of us carry a mutation that was compatible and that induces the loss of the wisdom teeth in my son? Or is it maybe a thing that is mediated through nourishment or environmental influence? If yes, how can that be? How can that work? Yeah. Yeah, because it exactly. would be the transmission of, I don't know, whatever acquired it, it would, you'd have to you'd have to imply to my offspring which yeah. is not so easy in the to incorporate into the neo darwinian model and in this wisdom teeth example also not if you look at epigenetics and all these new things and so this is only one example and and we we, we observe it around the globe obviously in different countries with different environmental conditions with different nutritional conditions people, humanity produces offspring with increasingly lower amounts of wisdom teeth. Why? I don't know. And there are many other examples. For example, then there is um, usually you have two arteries in your lower arm. Some people have three and the amount of people who have three is also drastically increasing in the last decades and across the globe, across generations, uh, just generations and even there, I, there was a publication, maybe you've heard about it, it went through the media and the internet, and so people reported on the increased prevalence of this. I don't think so, I've ever seen that, but yeah. it's interesting. But they, they provided no, no explanation. Mm. They, they said, well, it can be because of um, health issues and environmental issues, but it can't be at the same time 
And maybe it's because of mutations, but it can't be at the same yeah. time. So this was the explanation. It was really weird. So the bottom line I, I'm making here, there are evolutionary processes that we actually can observe in real time, in real life. They do take time, maybe some decades or whatever, but we don't, there's no possibility to align them to new Darwinian thinking. Mm. These, these trends that we can observe have apparently nothing to do with random mutations and the selection of the fittest. Because mm. there, for example, regarding the third artery here, there is no apparent uh, <laughs> increase apparent in reason as to why. Exactly. Mm. And as well, if you imply that these are environmental causes, you then have to wonder how does an environmental cause, which mm. is essentially a mental, you know, cause, how can that change the DNA so that it develops such a thing as a third artery or no wisdom teeth? Mm. There's maybe one thing that we could also say about selection, because selection is also very prominent, of course, in uh, evolutionary theorizing. And the story goes well, selection selects those individuals who are best adapted. But again, if you look at the details of many, many organisms, it's not that easy. And also if you look at biological textbooks, like the ones that I had and still have, the examples that the biologists and the teachers like to present are animals that are perfectly adapted to their environment. Take the cheetah. Yeah? Well, the athletic body and it needs to hunt in the, in the African steppe, I don't know, perfectly adapted. Or take the mole with, the, with these peculiar whiskers, forelimbs and, and the snout yeah. and, and the fur and the little eyes and it's, of course it's perfectly adapted to mm. living underground. But what about all the other animals that don't display these perfect adaptations? For example, marine organisms. So one author I, I like to read, he, he was actually very interested in marine organisms like and the lower organisms like sea urchins, mm -hmm. starfish, jellyfish, all these things. And there's a huge variety of all these organisms with very peculiar colors and shapes and mm. forms. And what do they do? Nobody has ever attributed <laughs> any specific selection and survival value to these colors and shapes. And there is not even sexual selection because in some of the higher organisms, especially birds, for example, you have also this concept of um, sexual selection. The females always like to have the most beautiful and the most colorful male and so they mate with them. And so this turns into kind of a self um, in propelling mechanism and, and for example then you at one point you end up at the peacock because the peahens always love to mate with the most beautiful peacock but many organisms there are very many traits that you cannot explain by sexual selection because it doesn't even occur also in plants the shape of leaves of plants is very different if you run across a, a meadow even the shape of blossoms is very very different and very many are pollinated by the same insects and I even know of uh, also a, a, a biologist who performed experiments who experimentally altered the shape of blossoms to see if that affects 
the pollination success. And it didn't, it was just, it didn't matter at all how precisely the flowers looked like. And if you, and my, one of my favorite examples, but what I also, and, and the, the point I, I want to make is you find, don't find these examples in the textbook on mutation and selection and evolution. You always find the prime examples that support this theory, but you never find the examples that don't really fit into this theory. And my prime examples are fungi. I'm also a big mushroom fan. And no, uh, uh, that you, you cannot uh, attribute a positive selection value to the shape and the color of a given mushroom fruiting body. Maybe the size is of course limited, but the, the only criterion that determines whether a given mushroom species is common or rare is on, lies on the physiological level. It, it, it depends on what requirements this mycelium has and if it is met easily or if it is difficult to, to establish in a given environment. But the, the way the fruiting body looks like, it, it, it's so amazing if you really know about mushrooms and how different they can be. Even one species can produce very many differently, differently shaped fruiting bodies. Nobody ever put mushrooms into a book on evolution and natural selection because it's simply not possible to use them there. And let me just now close this thought with, with another comment on sexual selection. I just mentioned the peacock already. What the peacock really shows nicely is that if somebody wants something to look very odd and to behave very unfit as the, the peacock obviously does and is, it can hardly fly, it is very colorful and loud and not good for yeah, anything. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't even <laughs> participate in breeding and feeding the chicks. It just hangs around and- It's just there to look nice. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, and shows off with other males and things like this. So that's really not what natural selection would be regard a very fit individual. So what you frequently find is that different modes of selection actually counter natural selection, which reduces its explanatory value enormously if I can behave in a manner that really doesn't fit to natural selection at all, just because my wife wants me to behave like that, for example, yeah, as in the case of the peacock, you cannot use it as, a, as, a, as an explanation for a whole variety of other phenomena that maybe also have nothing to do with sexual selection, uh, with natural selection. So again, just like mutations, selections and natural selection does of course occur and it does help to select the most healthy individuals and the strongest individuals and perhaps even the fittest individuals but only to a much much lower degree than is usually assumed and it is also therefore in my opinion not possible to regard it as the motor driving speciation and evolution, except for some exceptions. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's interesting thoughts. I mean, again, it's far beyond my level of understanding, um, mm -hmm. not having been trained in biology. But I could, the implications I pick up are very, very important to the to the um, field as a whole. Especially as you say, when examples are cherry picked to support the idea, and those that don't support the idea are ignored, because then, as you said earlier. There's no encouragement to look at the the the, um, the inconsistencies and to question why and what does that imply. So it's important to know both sides of of a, of a theory, 
and of course yeah. one that's as as well established as Darwinian evolution. 